Hey guys, I can't remember if I introduced myself earlier, but I'm Isaiah Alvarez, I'm the assistant student pastor here. Um, if you've been here in the last, I don't know, handful of weeks, maybe four or five weeks, we've been, as a church, participating in Lent. It's a 40-day period of celebration and remembrance of the Lord's um, triumphant revival uh, from the dead. It is a time spent letting go of the tight grip that we have on created things that we have been so conditioned to love and kind of, um, and to take like almost too tight of a grip on and, um, and instead tighten our grip on our Lord Jesus. This can be done in a vast number of ways. For me specifically, I've been spending a good chunk of Lent fasting from food. Um, if you know me, my wife and, and my wife and my mom are in this service, they know that I eat a bunch. I have been known to be super out of control, overeat, just eat up everything in the house. The blisses know that as well. Um, yeah, I tend to really idle over food and just have, honestly, just a lack of self-control in that area. So as you could assume, I'm like a huge fan of buffets. I love buffets. If I know that there's a buffet coming up one night in the week, I'll likely fast for uh, the whole day leading up to it, maybe even the night before, just to prepare my stomach for the almost internal warfare that's going to happen from eating all the food. I set my mind on this. If I come to the buffet really, really hungry, then there will be nothing holding me back from all the good things that the buffet offers. I can enjoy each little thing to its fullest, whether it's Crab Rangoon, chicken wings, mac and cheese, sushi, it doesn't matter. If I'm at a buffet, I'm eating everything. Um, But when I find myself fasting, when I find, as I'm looking forward to the buffet, uh, I find that any, like, pain or discomfort or any kind of suffering isn't really all that bad in light of the feast that's to come. And I believe that that's the way that the Lord is worthy of being seen. Does the Lord not offer himself up for us in immeasurable amounts? My good friend Erica, our student pastor, uh, she lent me a book by Jen Wilkin. It's called None Like Him. And in the opening page, Jen Wilkin offers um, some wisdom that, for me, just honestly floored me. She says this. She says, on the day I was born, the doctor who delivered me inscribed my birth records with a firm hand. Seven pounds, 11 ounces, 21 inches. It was the first legally attested evidence that I was not God. I would contribute ample proof to that effect in the ensuing years. But during the earliest moments of my life, on February 4th, 1969, well before I formed my first rebellious thought, uttered my first defiant syllable, or took my first disobedient step, the chasm between who God is and who I am had already been established by the simple fact that I was measurable. Guys, the God we serve is infinite. He is immeasurable. He is unquantifiable. He is uncontainable. And he is unbound. So during this Lent season, my hope is that as a church together, we can enjoy the buffet that the Lord has set out before us. He does not withhold a single bit of his love, his mercy, his grace, his goodness, or his lordship. He offers it up in fullness, in immeasurable amounts. So today, I would just like to Rejoice in the suffering, rejoice in the fasting and letting go of our grip because the Lord has prepared an endless buffet for us in heaven for the rest of time. So 
I just want to pray for us today to prepare our hearts to soften it for, for just the truth that that is. So if you join me in prayer, and then um, after that, we'll let Tim come up and speak. Father, we are thankful for, God, just the vast qualities of who you are. Lord, that as Tim said, God, that you are infinitely personal, but infinitely our Lord. You're not so far off that you don't care. You're not so far close that that you let things slide by. God, you are love. You are justice. You are grace. Thank you for offering those up to us in as much as we can carry, God, you are willing to give. Uh, Lord, prepare our hearts, soften our hearts for the teaching of your word, um, and just excite us, Lord. You're an exciting God. So uh, we love you. We pray that you teach us to love you more. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Isaiah. If you have a Bible, you want to open up to Genesis chapter 3. If you've got a hard copy, it's probably like page 2 or 3 in your Bible. As you get settled there, just a quick survey question, whether in school or sometime after you were done with school just for your own enjoyment, how many people have read A Tale of Two Cities? Okay, nice. This illustration is going to really slam home for like six of you. (laughs) In A Tale of Two Cities, um, the plot plays out in two cities, London and Paris, but the setting is kind of set, the two cities are set in contrast to one another. There's some things that are similar, but you're supposed to, as you read, pick up on these differences between the two places. My backup illustration has been how many people have seen Wicked. Yeah, it's the same in every service. Uh, So the Wicked Witch and Glinda the Good Witch, you get their backstory in Wicked the Musical, and you find out that when they were like high school aged, essentially they went to some boarding school and they got put as roommates. And there's this comparison contrast between like all the pink sparkly stuff of Glinda the Good Witch and all the sort of dark personality of Elphaba, who is the Wicked Witch of the West. Now, how many people have seen a Hallmark Christmas movie? Yeah, that's better. Um, <laughs> We're a real highbrow congregation, you can tell. Um, most Hallmark Christmas movies, right? There's like big city lawyer who's got her like fast-paced job in the city and she goes out to like rural middle of nowhere ranch and she realizes that like the slowness of that is kind of nice, right? And it's, it's in con- the contrast of those two things where like some, you know, hokey romantic plot unfolds in the midst of that. A comparison contrast. A Tale of Two Cities between two cities. Wicked, between these two personalities. Hallmark Christmas movies, between these two settings. It's Palm Sunday, and a lot of the times in our sermons, if you're familiar just kind of with the rhythm of how things work around here, we'll look at a text, then we'll do some applications, then we'll do like the Jesus-y stuff sort of at the end. I want to bring the Jesus-y stuff right to the beginning this morning. On Palm Sunday, we celebrate Jesus voluntarily walking himself into Jerusalem, crowds lining the streets, waving palm branches, shouting, Hosanna, save us. And Jesus willingly doing that in the celebration that it is preparing ourselves ahead of Good Friday and Easter. Well, a few days after the events of Palm Sunday, Jesus is going to willingly walk himself into a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he's going to pray 
And in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus is going to succeed and be obedient at every place where Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden fail. Our text this morning is the beginning of Adam and Eve's failure in the Garden of Eden. And what I want to do over the course of this morning is just sort of continually draw a comparison. How is it that we get from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden with a promise of life who end up walking out of the garden facing certain death all the way to Jesus who walks into a garden facing certain death only to emerge from a grave holding out everlasting life? That's the question in front of us this morning. Here's the next few weeks we're going to be in Genesis chapter 3. We've gone kind of slow here at the beginning of Genesis. That's because Genesis 1, 2, and 3 lays out for us what would be a Christian view of ontology. Ontology is like the philosophical category of the existence of things. What are they? Why do they exist? How do they exist? Those sorts of philosophical questions. Genesis 1, 2, and 3 answers those questions from a Christian perspective. How did the world get here? God created. Well, who is God? This is what he's like. What's humanity like? Genesis 1, 2, and 3 lays that out. And what we've seen in Genesis 1 and 2 is an incomplete picture. If you took Genesis 1 and 2 and said, well, this is how the world is, you would look around at your life and say, it's not exactly like that. That's because of what happens in Genesis chapter 3. So this morning, we're going to look at kind of the setup to that, verses 1 through 5. Next week, we'll look at the actual fall, where Adam and Eve sin, verses 6 and 7. Then there's a whole chunk in Genesis chapter 3 of consequences as a result of that sin. Consequences between humanity and God. Consequences that God gives both between humanity and also to creation itself. And then there's Adam and Eve leaving the garden. That'll take us like through April. And then in May, we'll get to Genesis chapter 4. Why are things the way they are this morning, specifically with our own sin and brokenness and interaction with temptation. If you've got Genesis open there in front of you, I'm gonna read verses one through seven. We're just gonna work with the first five this morning. It says this. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, But about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not die, the serpent said to the woman. In fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were open and they knew they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Let's pray. God, thank you for the cross like we sang about just a few moments ago. God, thank you for Jesus' willingness to set his face toward Jerusalem and to willingly go to the cross in our place. His blood would be poured out, his body would be given for us. God, thank you that though buried in a tomb, he resurrected and walked out in triumph. God, this morning, would would our hearts celebrate Jesus going to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross in our place? 
But would you also give us a clear understanding this morning and like a sober-mindedness about why he had to go there? Help us to see with clarity not just the reality of sin as it exists like out in the world, but the depth of sin as it exists in our hearts. God, teach us something about yourself. Help us to see your goodness, to rejoice in the truth of Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Here's a landing spot this morning. The serpent's temptation denies God's goodness, denies God's judgment, and denies God's uniqueness. God's goodness, judgment, and uniqueness. How does sin enter the picture in Genesis 3? How's it similar yet how are things a little different in our lives today as it relates to sin and temptation? And how does Jesus then reverse all of this and what does that mean for us as we struggle against sin and temptation? We're gonna answer all those questions sort of interwoven with one another as we walk through these verses. So verse one. Now the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, just stop there. There are some very logical questions that could be asked at that point in Genesis chapter three, such as why is there a talking snake? What is going on there? Why is the serpent present? Like we asked this about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If God knows that humanity is going to sin, why put the tree there and why the serpent? You could also ask a whole host of questions just about Satan in general. Like is the serpent the sort of physical manifestation of who Satan is? Is he a snake? Like, that's a fair question. Or is it that the serpent is somehow possessed by Satan in the moment? Is it that Satan is impersonating a snake? Maybe the most important question, in my mind, when you get to the end of chapter three, God curses Satan and says, you're gonna be cursed to crawl along on the ground on your belly for the, the, the rest of time. So did the serpent at the start of Genesis three have legs? Because that's horrifying. (laughs) And if so, how many of them? Like, is it like a giant centipede situation and then he loses his legs after the fall happens? What exactly is going on? Those are all logical questions. But Genesis 3 appears mostly uninterested in answering any of those questions for us. Along with questions about where Satan's sin is came from. In fact, if you sort of try to step back from all of our like general Christian context knowledge, we read Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 and when we see now the serpent, we just sort of insert Satan. And that's not bad. The rest of scripture helps us understand that that's what's happening there, but if you were in a place that had no context, for Christian scripture in the Bible, and you gave them Genesis, and they started reading chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, they would not intuitively know, oh, that's Satan, as we understand Satan. They would say, I got all these questions about the serpent, all the questions we just asked. It's the rest of scripture that we bring to Genesis chapter three. And that's not a bad thing. We should allow the whole of scripture to help us understand any one particular passage in scripture. It's Ezekiel chapter 28, 
Isaiah chapter 14, and a statement from Jesus in Luke chapter 10 that helps us understand that Satan was an angel, Lucifer, who fell from his place in heaven, along with some of his angelic followers, as a result of a self-generated sin within himself. Now, Scripture does not tell us exactly what that sin was. It doesn't give us the full story of how that played out, but it gives us enough to know that this was an angel, created being, who rose up in sin against God, and then Jesus says in Luke 10, he fell like lightning from his place in heaven. It's then Revelation, the book of Revelation, that ends up giving us the clear tie to Satan and the serpent. Both Revelation 12, verse 19, and Revelation 20, verse 2 use the exact same phrase, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. So it's actually the very end of the book that lets you know with clarity that at the start of the book, that serpent is definitively Satan in some form or fashion. What you have in Genesis 3, when you take the rest of the scripture and you bring it there, is sin pictured as a rebellion of created things against the creator. Created things choose to transgress the creator in some form or fashion. But even larger than that, what you have when you bring the rest of Scripture to sort of clarify Genesis chapter 3 is that sin has its origin in Satan. Satan is the means by which sin came into the universe as a whole. Now in Genesis chapter 3, Satan is bringing sin into the world that God created and he's setting it as an option before the people of God, Adam and Eve. It's as though Satan looks at Adam and Eve and says, you could actually eat that fruit. And they're like, I'd never considered that before. That's very differently than our interaction with sin. None of us look around at the opportunity to like break one of the commandments of scripture and think to ourselves, I never considered that you could just do something different than the Bible says. That's inherent to us. It like lives within our flesh. It happens in the blink of an eye within our hearts and within our minds and then shoots itself out into action. And most often we do nothing to even hinder the process. It's very different than that in Genesis chapter three. Adam and Eve have no concept at this point that they could eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil until the author of sin presents it to them as a choice. You won't die. You could eat that. Now everything changes. The rest of scripture is going to affirm for us the historical reality of Adam as a real person through whom sin enters into humanity. At that point, sin becomes ours. It's Paul in the New Testament who makes it clear that sin came to humanity through the disobedience of one person, Adam, and that salvation comes to the world through the obedience of one person, Jesus, the second Adam. So the viability of our salvation hangs on the historical reality of one man, Jesus, who we celebrate walking into Jerusalem in order to go to the cross on our behalf. The need for Jesus hangs on the historical reality of one man and his real sin, Adam. But even before that, sin comes into the world because of one real being, Satan and his real hatred and disdain for the God of the universe. Step back. 
Satan is a created being. Has a real disdain for the God of the universe. Jesus is the eternally existent son. And so whereas sin has its origin in Satan, salvation has its origin in God. Jesus is the eternally existent son of the Godhead Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And he comes into the world not as a created being, but as the eternally existent son who takes humanity upon himself and enters into the world. In Satan, you've got the author of sin, sent to the world as judgment, who then brings sin into the world that others might join him in his eternal misery. In Jesus, you have the eternal God of the universe entering into the world as a loving act of grace and mercy who brings salvation so that others can join him in his eternal joy. You got a tale of two gardens here. One in which Satan triumphs and one in which the son is going to triumph. Adam and Eve make a mess in response to the serpent's temptation. But they and their descendants will not be able to clean up that mess. Only Jesus can do that. One of the great ironies in this passage is that an animal who is to be subordinate to Adam convinces him to sin against the one that Adam is supposed to be subordinate to. A created thing tells Adam, who is supposed to rule and reign over created things, you don't have to listen to the thing that God said, and then Adam turns around and is disobedient to the one that he is supposed to live under the lordship of. And so I would ask a question, something for you to maybe consider before the Lord with a journal open sometime this week, maybe a conversation to have at lunch after service or with your small group sometime this week. And the question I would ask is, what power do created things have over me? Look, there's no question in Genesis 3 about whether Satan is God's equal or something like that. He's not. God rules Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve rule the creatures of the world, yet the creature convinces the human to sin against the creator. If you need a visual, like picture an org chart, if you will. You've got God at the top, like the CEO. You've got Adam and Eve underneath there, ruling and reigning over the animals on the bottom. And what happens in Genesis chapter 3 is that a thing on the bottom convinces the ones in the middle to sin against the thing on the top. It's totally backwards. The whole focus of our Lent reflections in services over the last few weeks have been that we want to loosen our hold on created things so that we can hold more tightly to the creator. I want to flip the question a little bit. How tight of a hold do created things have on you rather than how tight of a hold do you have on them? Why do we fast during Lent, whether it be from food or technology in some form or fashion or unnecessary spending or whatever it might be. Why fast like that? Because we're reminding our hearts that created thing does not control me. That's, that's the point of fasting. There's no like salvation in fasting. There is no like I become, you know, some sort of like leveled up in my spirituality or something like that. No, it's a simple reminder to your flesh and your broken sinful heart that thing does not control me. I exist under the rule of God. 
the God who commands what my life is to look like, the God who entered into the world in order to save me and now empowers my obedience. I do not live in submission to these things. So what are those created things that hold power over you? Money, possessions, comfort, notoriety, relationships in some form or fashion, sex, food, drink, as you move toward Good Friday and Easter, like if you haven't participated in the Lent uh, season up to this point, might I suggest that as you answer this question, you consider what would it look like to fast from that thing for a time in order to remind my head and my heart that it does not control me. Part of what we need to do in order to loosen our grip on other things is remind ourselves that they have no ultimate grip on us. Keep reading. He said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Our landing point this morning is that the serpent's temptation is a denial of God's goodness, judgment, and uniqueness. Here's where that starts. Just to remind ourselves with clarity, what is it exactly that God said? If you've got a Bible open there in front of you, either flip back or sort of scan your eyes up to Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. That's where we get the Lord's command because what takes place here is subtle on everyone's part until it's not so subtle anymore. Genesis 2, 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil for on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Now, the serpent does not begin here with like an outright attack on that. He leads with an insinuation. It's a declaration that becomes a question and it carries a sense of incredulity in it. Did God really say? It's like Satan looks at Eve and goes, can you believe this guy? Like, so he really said this, huh? He really had the nerve to tell you that you can't eat from any of the trees of the garden? It's worth noting that he overstates the situation as a means of exaggerating the fake kind of shock that he's creating. He says that you can't eat from any tree. Like, can you believe? He's the worst. He'd put all this stuff here and then tell you that you can't eat from any of it, and Eve responds. And her response is going to be one that subtly restricts God's goodness. She says, verse 2, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, What did God say? You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. It's so subtle. Like it sounds like it's not that big of a deal. God says you are free. Like look at all of the good stuff I put here and you are free to eat any of it. And Eve says, we can eat some of it. Like she restricts his provision, the sense of their liberty and freedom in order to partake in it. You bring that forward to today and there is still a question about the fullness of God's goodness that lurks in the human heart. Like how good is he? Has God actually given me the freedom to enjoy the stuff that he's put here and to flourish and ultimately enjoy him in the midst of that? Am I free to enjoy all of God's provision and thus to flourish in the world that he created? 
That's a question we wrestle with. And then she expands the command. We may eat from the fruit, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. Give Adam and Eve a little bit of credit. Like, let's assume the best here. You can't eat it if you don't touch it. So maybe in some sense, they said, look, we'll just create a little bit of a boundary around this and that will protect us from actually eating from the tree. But they've also assigned death to the touching. That's not something God ever said. Bring that forward to today. There's a little legalist that lurks in the human heart. Like you've maybe been going to church for a very long time. You've maybe been walking with Jesus for a very long time. And you would maybe like ardently agree that you are saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. But most of us, if really pressed, would also articulate some level of, and because I'm so obedient, maybe not thus I am saved, but we would probably articulate a little bit of like, well, I'm so good that like, Jesus was like happy to come. Like he, I deserved to be saved. See how righteous I am? And it's not just that I'm righteous and obedient to the things that God commanded and thus I was worthy to be saved. I've also created some of my own rules around the rest of the things that God actually said. And I'm really good at being obedient to my own rules. And I've created my own sins of what righteousness is. But we've already reminded ourselves where salvation's origin is. It's only in God. But we kind of like to think, well, just do this, that, and the other, and I'll be good enough for heaven. The reality is, typically, in our this, that's, and the others, we've made an addition that actually turns God into something stricter, less good, and less gracious than he actually is. We've restricted his goodness and created our own set of laws and commands. And then she diminishes the judgment or you will die. What did God say? You will certainly die. What began as an insinuation from the serpent, now he's gonna grab hold of that and give the outright denial. No, you will not die. Your text might actually say, you certainly will not die. He's gonna add the certainty to the wrong side of it. She's left that out. Bring that forward to today. There's an aversion to the reality of judgment lurking in the human heart. We get squeamish on this topic pretty quickly. We read the Old Testament, we think, ooh, God was really judgmental. Then we get to the New Testament, and we're like, he's not like that anymore. But Jesus is as clear on the reality of judgment in his own ministry as the entirety of the Old Testament is. Jesus is repeatedly saying, good trees, bad trees, they're gonna be separated. Wheat from chaff, sheep from goats. The kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that's thrown into the ocean, it collects everything, and then there's a sorting that takes place out of what has been collected. He's very clear on the reality of judgment. The serpent makes the outright denial. You won't die. And he sort of papers over the whole thing with a false offer. And the false offer is that you can have consequence-free disobedience. 
consequence-free disobedience. Isn't that kind of what we all want? Like we want it as humans at virtually every stage of life. Your children want consequence-free disobedience. Mom said not to do that. I'm going to do it anyway. I dare you to punish me. Will you or won't you? Students in school, we want consequence-free disobedience. It's just like our sort of default mode. We don't really think about it, but we do the thing that's bad, and then we're shocked that someone would punish us for it. We're still the same way with adult, as adults. Whether it be at work, whether it be with the laws of like the places where we live, we transgress things and then we just dare someone to punish us. Or we transgress things and then we give our list of reasons why I shouldn't be punished. Because we want consequence-free disobedience. We want that in our relationship with God as well. That's why a couple weeks ago we talked about we can go two ways with this. We create a God who's so big and so transcendent that he doesn't really see or care what's going on down here and I can do whatever I want. Or we create a God who's sort of so soft and judgment-free and so like close to us that he would choose to look the other way when we're disobedient. And Satan says, it's true. You won't die. You certainly won't die. Never mind the fact that he's there in front of them because there is no such thing as consequence-free disobedience. He sinned in heaven and was cast out. You have no place here any longer, Lucifer. You can go to the earth and go back and forth in it. That's how Job describes it. And so what you've got, once you've sort of disregarded the doctrine of God's goodness and provision and you've disregarded the doctrine of judgment, is a God that we could become completely ambivalent toward. Like he's not good enough to celebrate and he's not just enough to revere. Who cares about that guy? Can you believe him? Did he really say? Step back and think about Jesus again. Jesus comes, John 1 says, as the word made flesh. Every aspect of God's word brought to life in human flesh. Every aspect of God's word embodied, upheld, and obeyed. Not only embodied and obeyed, though. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says himself that he's not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to accomplish them. So he's all of God's word, embodied, upheld, obeyed, fulfilled in the human flesh. And now he stands before us as both the fulfiller of the law who provides for us the salvation we could not achieve on our own, but also as our example of what it looks like to live faithfully and obediently and the one whose grace motivates and empowers us to do so. In Jesus, all the goodness of God comes into the world in order to save us from the certainty of God's just judgment. Let's step back and ask another question. Again, whether in conversation with someone or just with a notebook open before the Lord this week. Is God good or not? In all of his provisions, is he good? The things that he's provided for us, do they lead us to joy, satisfaction, or do they not? 
Are they abundant and sufficient for what our soul really craves, or are, are they not? All of his commands, are they good or are they not? Do they lead to flourishing or do they not? All of his commands, are they in our best interest or are they not? All of his commands, should we get to decide what's right and wrong, or is he good enough to decide what's right and wrong for us? All of the consequences of our disobedience, are they real or are they not? That's the question before Adam and Eve in the garden. It's still the question that lurks inside of our human heart in a fallen, broken world. Moment by moment, oftentimes quicker than we're consciously thinking, we're making that evaluation and choosing accordingly. Here's the thing I want to do. God has said not to do it. Is he holding out on me? Can I not do it because ultimately he's not good and there's not something better for me? I don't think he's good. I'm going to do it. And that happens inside of you just like in the snap of a finger. And one way to break our almost subconscious patterns of sin is to slow ourselves down enough to ask these sorts of questions. This thing that I want to do, that God has said is not good, can I trust him? Is there something there that in my mind I should get to decide is good and therefore I'm going to take hold of it? Are the consequences that would come into my life here in this world, but also in an eternal sense, are they true? And usually, if you can slow yourself down and ask those questions long enough, either the moment of temptation is going to have passed, or you'll be reminded of the ultimate futility of sin and the great goodness of Jesus. If we just take enough time to stop and think about it. So we've seen two of the denials. The serpent's temptation denies God's goodness and his judgment, but there's one more thing at play, denies God's uniqueness. Verse five, Satan gives what is an intoxicating offer. God knows that when you eat, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, what's the great irony here? In a way that's different from all of the rest of creation, Adam and Eve are already like God, made in his image, bearing that image in the world that he has created. Their likeness to him, in John Piper's words from a few weeks ago, is the very thing that causes God to love humanity uniquely. But the temptation to be like God is the temptation to be like him in the ways that we want to be like him instead of the ways that he has graciously ordained us to bear his image. Typically, that means being like him in the sovereignty to decide, to have power about what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil, what are the consequences or the lack thereof. And so what the serpent holds out to Adam and Eve is that they could do wrong and gain an advantage. Oh, well, you could transgress God's law, but gain an advantage. You could be like him. The reality that's at play is that whatever advantage they think they're going to gain, it could never be worth the cost of the consequences. And the same is still true today. One last time, contrast that with Jesus. Paul tells us in Philippians chapter two that our attitudes on this side of the cross are to be like that of Jesus Christ who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Let that sink in. The eternal son of God takes on flesh, enters into the world, and at every point along his life and ministry, 
rejects the opportunity to be like God. Why? It's not something to be grasped. Eve is told by the serpent that by grabbing that fruit and taking a bite, she can be like God. Jesus, face to face with Satan while being tempted in the wilderness, is given the chance. Turn stones to bread like God. No, I will not do it. Command angels. No, I will not do it. While he's on the cross, the thief said, save yourselves, yourself and us. And Jesus says, I will not do it. Because equality with God is not something to be grasped. God is the one who rules, governs, decides. And Jesus, in the flesh, has come in order to obediently fulfill that purpose, not to create his own. So, let's step back and ask one more question. Have we or have we not? Have you or have you not accepted your place in the world? And by that, I mean that you are created, not the creator. That he is God and you are not. That he gets to decide right and wrong and we do not. That I am the created one, not the creator. Let's end where we started, in the second garden with Jesus, the second Adam. We're told a few days after Jesus enters into Jerusalem that on Thursday evening he has dinner with his disciples and then he walks out into a garden in order to pray. And in the garden, sort of abandoned by his uh, closest friends who keep falling asleep on him, we're told that as he's praying, he's sweating drops of blood. But there's such anguish there in the Garden of Gethsemane that he's so overwhelmed and so stressed that he's sweating blood. What is going on there? We get a little picture into what that prayer is, that he is wrestling through all of these realities. Not my will, but yours be done. All of these kinds of temptations are present there before him. That's why scripture can tell us that he's been tempted like us in every way and yet is without sin. In the first garden, Adam and Eve faced the temptation to deny God's goodness, deny God's judgment, deny God's uniqueness, and they reached out and they grabbed hold of it. But in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus could deny God's goodness. That salvation to humanity simply wasn't worth it, and yet he doesn't. In the garden, Jesus could have denied God's judgment that the punishment he was about to face certainly wasn't necessary for that salvation to come into the world. And yet, he doesn't. In the garden, Jesus could deny God's uniqueness that he could come up with a better way for this whole thing to happen that doesn't involve the cross. And yet, he does none of it. And we are the beneficiaries. There's the goodness of Jesus, absorbing the judgment of God so as to not make us equal with God, but to give us union with him. That's the great beauty in the Garden of Eden. Not that Adam and Eve are like God, but that they're walking with him in unhindered unity. On this side of the cross, the only way back to that unity is thanks to the work of the second Adam, who triumphed in the second garden in every place that Adam and Eve failed in the first one. 
And because of his triumph there in the second garden, he goes to the cross without any sin of his own. The sin of the world is placed upon him. He bears the just judgment and wrath of God toward all of humanity's sin. He dies, he's placed in a tomb, and on the third day, he resurrects and triumph over it. And so the second Adam walks out of the garden of Gethsemane with a certainty of life available, whereas the first Adam walked out of the garden of Eden facing the certainty of death. That's how you get from one garden to the other. Tale of two cities, decent book. Tale of two gardens, life-changing reality. Amen? Amen, let's pray and we'll worship. God, thank you for Jesus. God, I pray that as we prepare our hearts and minds to celebrate the triumph of Easter Sunday, God, that you would give us just a full, healthy, sober-minded understanding of the fullness of sin and the depth of our brokenness. God, that we would see on Good Friday not a papering over of your just judgment, but the fullness of your judgment against sin falling on the shoulders of the sinless son in our place. God, help us to see the depth of our own brokenness. God, help us to identify the subtle temptations of our own flesh and of the serpent, Satan, God. Help us to see when we would be tempted to reject your goodness or tempted to reject the reality of judgment or tempted to elevate ourselves into equality or into the place of God. And would you help us to repent, Lord? Help us to break the hold that created things have upon us. God, help us to deny the little legalist that works in our hearts, to accept the full goodness that you have for us. God, help us like Jesus, not to think equality with you is something to be grasped, but instead to humble ourselves beneath the wonder of a savior who died in our place that we might have union with you. Um, Would the result be humble submission and joyful living? God, would we experience the full joy of flourishing in this place that you've created as we live out life in humble submission to you as Lord, to Jesus as King, with an eye toward the hope of an eternity in union with you. God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.